From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. 1996 could be called the year of baseball in Lansing. 1996, the Lansing Lugnuts moved from their previous home in Springfield, Illinois, to Lansing, Michigan. Owners Tom Dixon and Sherry Myers had previously purchased the team, and upon moving the franchise to Lansing and playing their first game on April 5th of 1996, Baseball returned, professional baseball returned to Lansing. Lansing had a long history of the sport of baseball being played here. And on this episode of Land Stories, we're going to look at baseball in Lansing. But we're not going to look at the Lansing Lugnuts. We're going to go way back in time to the very first professional baseball team that played in Lansing. A team that went through several iterations and played in several leagues a team that was known as the Lansing Senators. Baseball has a history that runs parallel to so many other aspects of American culture and American society, and it has its roots as an American sport way back in time before even the American Civil War. And I think one of the reasons why baseball captivates to this day the memory uh, the the uh, historical memory and a lot of the interest in American cultural history is precisely for that reason, because it goes so far back in time. There are very few things left in American society that we encounter very obviously on a day-to-day basis that date back to before the Civil War. But baseball, for people that follow sports, is one such sport. Baseball has a history in and of itself that is very much tied into how the United States developed as a nation, going all the way back again to the decades prior to the Civil War. And by the time you get to the 1880s, the 1890s, baseball is being played as a professional sport all around the United States. And by professional sport, what's really meant by that is people are getting paid to do it. They're getting paid to play baseball. The definition typically of a professional compared to, say, an amateur is oftentimes, well, a professional is paid to do something and an amateur necessarily isn't. Professional baseball, therefore, makes its presence known everywhere around the United States by the time you get into the latter part of the 19th century. And Lansing, being a growing city in the Midwest of the United States at the time, itself became the home of a professional baseball team. In 1889, playing in the then-called Michigan State League, a six-team professional baseball league located in the state of Michigan, as the name would suggest, The Lansing Senators play their first game, managed by W.H. Mumby. And that league, the Michigan State League, like a lot of 
early professional baseball leagues in the United States was not a uh, financially solvent league. It had troubles, and as the professional sport of baseball expands, many leagues come and go. The Michigan State League is interesting because it had several iterations to it. It formed in 1889 and played through the 1889 season and into 1890, and then it folded, and then it came back a few years after that and folded again and came back again. All in all, the Michigan State League went through several iterations of formations and reformations throughout the early part of the 1900s. And the Lansing Senators would be a part of that league for its existence. The other cities that were represented uh, with teams in the Michigan State League included teams in Adrian, Battle Creek, Jackson, Kalamazoo, Owasso, Port Huron, Muskegon, Manistee, Grand Rapids, Greenville, Flint, Saginaw, all around the southern part of Michigan that teams were organized at the professional level and played in this league. So with Lansing, the Senators were playing in a league that was consisting of teams that came from places in southern Michigan, therefore, that were of similar size to Lansing. The 1895 Lansing Senators were one of the more respectable teams that Senators put on the field in the Michigan State League. And 1895 was one of those reiterations of the Michigan State League. It formed in 1889, it folded in 1890, and it came back in 1895. The 1895 Lansing Senators season saw the team go 56 and 36. And one of the more interesting stories on that team is a 47-year-old player who ended with a career batting average of 308 in 465 career games, a gentleman by the name of Bud Fowler. And Bud Fowler was born John W. Jackson in none other than Cooperstown, New York. Cooperstown, New York is the home of the Baseball Hall of Fame nowadays. And there are a few Cities in the United States, few towns in the United States that have more of a nostalgic and historic tie to the history of baseball than Cooperstown because of its location as the Baseball Hall of Fame. And there's an interesting history behind why Cooperstown became the home of the Baseball Hall of Fame. And that actually is a story for another day that, uh, well, if this was a program that looked at the history of New York we would get into but for now we'll leave it at that and we'll keep our focus for the moment on Bud Fowler. Born John W. Jackson in Cooperstown, Fowler was the first professional baseball player in the United States who is African-American. That's right. Uh, Jackie Robinson is known as the player who broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball which happened in the 1940s, but going all the way back to 1878, Fowler made his professional baseball appearance for the first time playing in the International Association. He was, by 1895, the only African-American professional baseball player anywhere in the United States that we know of. He finished his career, as I mentioned, with a career batting average over 300, he hit 308 and played in 465 games. That's quite the career 
for any minor league baseball player. And certainly at that time, when leagues such as the Michigan State League, for example, played somewhere around 100 games a season on average. So he had a career that took him uh, different places in the United States. The 1895 Lansing Senators ended up having uh, several players on the team that had quite the record. And, and Jack Daly was the uh, team leader that year. He hit 397, uh, had 143 hits and 25 home runs. Now, the year-by-year history of the Lansing Senators is very interesting to consider. And in thinking about professional baseball, though, the cultural aspect of it is, in my mind, uh, every bit as interesting as the year-by-year stats. And, and baseball is a sport that is absolutely obsessed with stats and statistics. Uh, if you do not follow baseball at all, the knowledge of the statistical nature of the sport is nonetheless very obvious if you have any conversation with anybody who follows baseball. If you take a look at baseball scores uh, that are printed, they are full of statistics. And part of the reason for that is because baseball is this unique sport that has a combination of a team organization with the opportunity for individuals themselves to contribute greatly to the team. And baseball, perhaps because of that setup, also is a sport that can have one or two players who are really, really good and have absolutely outstanding statistics playing for a team that is otherwise not so good. And I could name... uh, quite a few teams that are in the major leagues right now that would fall under this uh, description. So baseball has always been a sport that has looked heavily upon statistics as a way of trying to explain what's going on. But culturally, baseball has this incredible, fascinating history that runs parallel with so many aspects of the development of American culture. The way the sport itself was played and looked at going all the way back to its earliest days, uh, tells us much about American culture, American society, and how that culture and society was developing. So if we go back to the early days of baseball, the years shortly after the Civil War, the decade of the 1870s, and into the decade of the 1880s, when the sport is being organized and starting to be played professionally, the rules of the game are set And an entire culture develops around not only playing the game, but watching it as a spectator that very much mimics or mirrors society as a whole. And in that aspect, baseball is a sport that in some ways becomes an action art form that is played out in front of an increasingly large group of spectators And the players on the field take on roles that in some ways are artistic renditions of roles that are developing in society. So baseball was a sport that was always played in the afternoon. And the duration of a baseball game early on 
was set that it was something that people could have a leisurely afternoon, a break from work, whatever their work entailed, to sit around for a couple hours and watch a game, a game of skill, both athletic skill and mental skill, sort of a combination of the physical and the psychological or emotional acumen that was necessary to successfully navigate this game. And spectators would come out to baseball games in the afternoon, and it was quite an affair. People would dress nicely to go to baseball games. It was seen as a gentleman's sport. And up until even into the 1930s and 40s, uh, one can look at uh, photos taken of professional baseball games, and the crowds are full of people that are dressed in their Sunday best. Uh, Early on, the sport was more heavily attended by men than women, but women have always been uh, an important part of the game of baseball, including uh, professional baseball. There were women leagues that developed side-by-side the earliest uh, professional leagues that men played in. And in that aspect, there's another cultural development that's going on in the United States because in the late 1800s and early 1900s, you have a substantial movement for women's rights in the United States. Ultimately, uh, the biggest right being the right to vote, uh, which was a right that was fought for at the state and then eventually at the national level in the late 1800s and early 1900s. There are other aspects of baseball culture that uh, we can consider as being endemic. And again, kind of an artistic representation of what was going on in American society as a whole. Let's imagine for a moment that it's the year 1885, and we're watching a professional baseball game. And it's a team like the Lansing Senators that are playing. The ballpark is indeed a park. It is a park setting. Very similar to city parks that were developing all around the uh, United States at the time. Parks were set up in urban environments during this time period, uh, seen as an essential component of creating a healthy city. American cities were industrializing and growing rapidly at this time period. And that industrialization brought with it a certain crowding that bothered a lot of social reformers at the time. And the development of a workforce that was moving into cities to work in places like factories or offices, which was a great deviation from the overwhelmingly agricultural society. And an American economy was built almost entirely on agriculture uh, before the Civil War. And social reformers, people who were looking at society as a whole, as it's developing into this industrial production society, looked at the movement of people into cities and the uh, rearranging of work out of the outdoors into the indoors and indoor environments such as factories as being something that potentially threatened the health and the overall well-being of society writ large. And so... As an attempt to alleviate this, many city planners start 
building parks at the time period. And there are uh, some of the largest urban parks in the world uh, in existence to this day, actually, in the early 21st century have their roots, uh, their founding, their organization, their layout, their design, their construction into the social reform movement that gave birth to them in the late 1800s. So the setting of baseball games is very much in a park. And to this day, we call baseball stadiums the ballpark. The uniforms that men wore at the time intended to identify the player, of course, but they were also uniforms that would bring a visual representation of order. A visual representation of order because with uniforms, the players could be identified from those who were not playing, and one team could be discerned from another. The umpire. The umpire turns out to be a very important character in our artistic rendering of society being played out in roles on the baseball diamond. The umpire originally wore a uniform that looked like a police officer's uniform at the time. And the role of the umpire in a baseball game was very much analogous to the role of the police officer on the city street. So imagine you are sitting in a lovely park watching a game take place that involves a great degree of skill, both mental and physical acumen, and it is being overseen by an umpire figure who has the appearance of a police officer. And that is what the original experience of going to a baseball game would have entailed. And baseball as a sport has its rules set during this time period. And in cities like Lansing, all around the United States, professional baseball teams organize and become professional by means of players being paid to play the sport and the revenue to pay those players coming from the fans who were charged to go watch these games. So the professional sport itself has this just fascinating uh, timeline of, of development that goes right along a timeline of development of urbanization and industrialization in the United States. And the Lansing Professional Ball Club, therefore, uh, is right in line with this. And the very first home of professional baseball in Lansing was a park that is not there anymore. It was a place called Capital City Park. It was located on southeast corner of Washington and Elm Streets. Uh, just south of downtown Lansing. And that is where the Lansing Senators would play in 1889 and the brief 1890 season that uh, folded uh, before it was even half over. The ballpark was quite small, so we don't have attendance statistics, for example, to tell us how many people would have gone to a Lansing Senators game. Capital City Park wasn't the only place that the Senators played, though. And in fact, there were several um, baseball parks that would come and go in Lansing as the Michigan State League formed and reformed and formed and reformed. 
uh, as discussed in the early part of this program. And the Senators professional baseball team in Lansing would therefore move or play at different locations. Capital City Park existed. The next place where professional baseball was played in Lansing was a place called Partial Park. That's spelled P-A-R-S-H-A-L-L. And Partial Park was located right in downtown Lansing. It was a few blocks behind where the Capitol building sits nowadays. And it, uh, it housed the Lansing Senators. It had its own rules. They couldn't play baseball there on Sundays, for example. And it uh, takes its name from the gentleman who owned the Lansing uh, Senators at the time, a gentleman by the name of R.N. Partial. Other places that the Lansing Senators played included Fairgrounds Driving Park, uh, not actually located where the current Ingham County Fairgrounds are. Uh, Fairgrounds Driving Park was in the neighborhood to the east of downtown Lansing. So if one drives Michigan Avenue or walks Michigan Avenue east about a mile from the state capitol building uh, where it currently stands, that is where Fairgrounds Driving Park was located. It was a neighborhood ballpark and the uh, the story goes that the team was forced to leave because the neighbors didn't like all the commotion that came with uh, people gathering to watch the sport being played. The Lansing Senators also played at League Park, Waverly Park, Community Park, and Municipal Park. And all of these are locations that were scared around uh, different places in the city of Lansing. So the footprint, if you will, of professional baseball in Lansing followed very much what went on in other cities of the size. The game was played in city parks or other open areas that were either purchased outright by the team or leased by the team or the team was given permission in some cases, uh, permission that did not last permanently to play its sport. And this is really very much how uh, the early days of professional baseball worked in the United States. One such location the Lansing Senators played in, a park called Waverly Park, was located where Waverly High School is located nowadays, or very near it, on Snow Road. At the time, that would have been the outskirts of Lansing. And this is one of those really neat connections of past to present that is entirely related to baseball. Waverly High School uh, is the uh, high school that probably the most famous baseball player ever to come from Lansing went to school at, and that would be none other than the Hall of Fame pitcher John Smoltz. John Smoltz went to school at Waverly High School. It's where he graduated from. Uh, from the Lansing area, and John Smoltz would go on to have a Hall of Fame career, uh, most notably as a starting pitcher and then a reliever for the Atlanta Braves. So the name Waverly, Waverly High School and location where Waverly High School stands on Snow World has a, an absolutely uh, undeniable and uh, inseparable connection to American pastime of baseball. And that's going to do it for this episode of Land Stories. Uh, be sure and follow our program at lccconnect.org. 
shoot me an email. Send me a message if you uh, heard anything on this program that you would like more information on. And be sure and tune in next time. We are going to continue looking at the history of baseball in its early days in Lansing. You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seawick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories. Examining the issues and topics that affect our lives from the local level to the world stage. Listen to the programs of LCC Connect anytime at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Lansing Community College is proud to present We're Better Than That, an anti-bigotry campaign. Embracing diversity is a continuing process, one that requires honesty, cooperation, and meaningful conversations. At Lansing Community College, we understand our journey towards inclusion and equity begins with an examination of how we relate to one another and a pledge to engage in the work necessary for meaningful progress to facilitate conversations and initiatives that will combat racism and hate speech in our college community. The Office of Diversity and Inclusion has partnered with the Office of Police and Public Safety to create We're Better Than That a comprehensive campaign to combat institutional bias and racism. To find out more about We're Better Than That, visit lcc.edu. In 1911, Thomas and Emily Dalton looked with compassion at their community. They didn't have much money, but they dedicated themselves to meeting physical and spiritual needs by creating the City Rescue Mission of Lansing. For over 100 years, through the Great Depression and several recessions, through world wars and cold wars, the mission continues to work in Michigan's capital area, seeing the need and meeting the need. A lot has changed in the past century, but the power of compassion in action will never change. A small act of kindness can impact our entire community. We see it reflected every day in the progress made by women and men working to transition out of homelessness and into independence. They can do it because of the support of our fellow rescuers. Together, we provide food, shelter, and hope to hundreds of people in need. For more information on the City Rescue Mission of Lansing, visit BeARescuer.org. Founded in 1957, LCC has addressed the needs of Michigan industries through education for more than 65 years. Anchored by the downtown campus located in the heart of Lansing, LCC serves mid-Michigan communities with additional campuses in Delta Township, East Lansing, and Livingston County. The college offers more than 200 degrees and certificate programs and is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Those interested in learning more about LCC may visit lcc.edu slash youbelong. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes.
Vision. This is Amy Wagonar from the Historical Society of Michigan with a Michigan History Moment. From 2013 to 2016, millions of public television viewers tuned in to watch the popular series Mr. Selfridge. The show followed the life and times of flamboyant department store owner Harry Selfridge. His huge department store, Selfridge's, was a sensation in London. But Selfridge's did not originate in London. Harry Selfridge, in fact, grew up in Jackson, Michigan. It was in Michigan that he developed many of the skills that led to his success as a retailer and some of the flaws that eventually led to his downfall. Harry Selfridge was born in Wisconsin in 1858. His parents had moved there from the Jonesville, Michigan area and returned to Jackson soon after Harry's birth. Harry's father enlisted in the 3rd Michigan Cavalry at the outbreak of the Civil War. He survived the war, but never returned to his family. Harry's mother, Lois, had to survive on her own. She found employment as a schoolteacher and became headmaster of Jackson High School. She insisted that Harry always go to school wearing a clean shirt and polished shoes, lessons that he would retain when he inspected his department store employees on morning tours of the store. As a schoolboy, Harry took a summer job at the Camp Winters & Company dry goods store in Jackson and stocked shelves at the Leonard Fields department store. He learned the value of advertising when he and a schoolmate sold ads to town merchants in a monthly magazine that they published. Later, he would spend $150,000 on full-page ads in London newspapers to advertise the grand opening of his department store. The store saw 90,000 customers walk through the door the morning that it first opened. Selfridge moved to Grand Rapids while in his late teens. He worked for an insurance company and developed an affinity for two things that would eventually prove his downfall, gambling and prostitutes. He returned to Jackson in 1876, but didn't stay long. In 1879, he moved to Chicago and began working his way up the ranks in Marshall Field's department store. He eventually opened his own vast department store, Selfridges, in London. There, he enjoyed fabulous success. Harry Selfridge's personal flaws finally caught up with him. High living, expensive affairs with women, and gambling losses consumed most of his fortune. The store's board of directors finally forced him to resign from his own store. He existed on a small pension and lived out his days in England in a little flat near Putney. Harry Selfridge, the department store icon from Michigan, died in 1947. This Michigan History Moment is brought to you by michiganhistorymagazine.org. This is LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. October 17th through the 21st, Lansing Community College will be celebrating National Transfer Student Week. You can learn more about transferring options available to LCC students. LCC University Center partner universities and Michigan State University will be on the downtown campus in the Gannon Building. Representatives from each university will be available with information about transferring. Find more details by visiting lcc.edu uc. Thank you for listening to LCC Connect. I'm Paul Schwartz, and I host a show called The Safety Plan. The Safety Plan is about the latest cyber scams and how to avoid them. 
You can catch the safety plan here on LCC Connect or listen anytime at lccconnect.org. Come on, Dad, I'm running circles around you. <laughs> I know, sweetie. Uh, Dad's not very fast these days. What about yesterday? Were you fast yesterday? No, not... Or the day before that? I, I was... Or the day before that? Actually, I, I wasn't ever really fast. Hard to believe, I know. <laughs> Kids are special. Let's treat them that way. That's okay. When I was little, I wasn't fast either. Now I'm fast, so you'll be fast tomorrow. That's how it works. Now come on. (laughs) (laughs) At St. Baldrick's Foundation, we want kids to be kids. Not just during trips to the park, but when they need us most. When they need help fighting cancer. That's why the advanced research we fund is specifically designed to help children. (laughs) I'm pooped after all this. Dad, you're supposed to do that in the bathroom. (laughs) Support St. Baldrick's and childhood cancer research today by going to stbaldricks.org and getting involved. Lansing Community College's downtown and West Campus offer newly renovated conference and event spaces that can accommodate over 500 attendees. Professional event planners are available to guide you through your experience from setup to catering. LCC offers convenient locations, state-of-the-art technology and hybrid meeting capabilities, in-house catering, free event parking, and on-site customer service. For more information about LCC's conference and event spaces or to request a rental quote, please contact LCC's conference services at lcc-events at lcc.edu. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. This is Teachable Moment, the show where we get to know the people that make LCC go. I'm Steve Robinson, president of Lansing Community College, and I go one-on-one with a member of our campus community to learn about a key concept or idea from their area of expertise. It's a show about what makes LCC great, the fantastic people with inspiring ideas who change lives every day with their incredible work. My guest today is Bob Ford, professional landscape architect at Landscape Architects and Planners, where they specialize in sustainable placemaking, site design, and land planning. He's joining me today as a member of our community to discuss one of the gems on our downtown campus, the Shigematsu Japanese Garden. Bob, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. I am so excited to be talking to you because you played a very important role in creating one of the most special LCC places that I know. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But before we do that, I would love to learn a little bit about you and your firm. You're a landscape architect. Tell me about your company and what you do there. Hey, thank you very much, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Landscape Architects and Planners has been in business for 32 years as a landscape architectural planning uh, firm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Prior to that, there was a Robert Ford and Associates. Okay. That was your prior company? Correct. Uh And I also, in my previous career, worked for the city of Lansing I've worked for uh, other landscape architectural firms and an engineering firm. All that goes uh, into what has become a 32-year adventure, and I like to think of it as a labor of love. It's really a, a great place to work in Lansing, Michigan. And from Lansing, our firm has been able to not only work throughout the city and region, but also the state and adjoining states. 
And we also have worked overseas in China on some exciting projects there as well. Well, that's fascinating. And I, you and I have talked a little bit about some of the very special places in and around our community that your firm uh, had a hand in building. You say labor of love. When you look at some of these big rocks and trees, it's a lot of labor. This is very physical work. It is. Uh, we're, the, we're the architects. So we really don't get involved in the construction other than to oversee it. Right. Make sure that it complies with the specifications and plans that we draw. Mm-hmm. And we like to involve the community and or the client so that we can understand what it is they're looking for as a vision for their projects. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today is a very particular vision from 2006 to memorialize a a very important person and a very important program here at the college. But before we get into our Japanese garden, uh, you also taught here in the landscape architecture program at at LCC. How long were you an instructor here? A little over 22 years. Oh, fantastic. And so you, you, you taught students in this discipline that, you, that you've worked in for so long. That's right. There was a landscape architectural technicians program. In fact, we have uh, one of their graduates in our company uh, today. Okay. Well, somebody for me to talk to on my other podcast, which I, where I talk to alumni. So, Bob, uh, one of the reasons we connected on this is uh, we've had our um, Shigematsu Memorial Japanese Garden since 2006. It commemorates a, a, a long-standing international program that we had in Japan, and it's become a big interest of mine. I really care about this space, and it's really loved by the community. I wanted to have you on the show so you could tell me some of the stories about the design and the thought process going into that. This is getting to be quite a while ago. How did you and your firm get involved with our project to build the Shigematsu Memorial Garden? Well, we were fortunate uh, to go through a bid process, Mm -hmm. and we were retained by the community college Mm -hmm. to do the campus beautification plan. Oh, okay. So you were involved on a a larger scale of campus beautification, and the Shigematsu Garden was uh, a part of that. Exactly. Okay. Uh, It became a focal point. Uh, It was in a space that was uh, between Darda Auditorium and the uh, Herman... The Herman, what was then the Herman Conference Center and is now uh, the president's residence, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and it was kind of an abandoned space. It was, it was just grass. There was a few trees and um, a storm sewer in the center of the, of the grass area. Really? So where the pond is now was a storm sewer? That's right. Wow, okay. So it started from humble beginnings. Yeah. And somewhat of a, a leftover piece of ground. So we said it would be nice to beautify that area and make a link between Capitol Avenue by bringing a walk into that area and then connecting to campus. Uh, Lo and behold came the Shigematsu, uh, what would you call it, Uh, acknowledgement. Right. I think that my memory, and I'm sort of a student of our history, I wasn't here then, but I think that was the 25th anniversary of our international programs, Japan Adventure, Japan Horizon, and I believe that Mr. Shigematsu had recently passed, and there was uh, uh, this was an effort to memorialize his important uh, contribution, if I remember correctly. That's right. So this was an acknowledgement to Mr. Shigematsu. Mm-hmm. And he was the president of the Bowako Steamship Company. Right. He 
and his uh, staff uh, thought it would be well deserved to to make some sort of contribution. Mm -hmm. And Lansing Community College honored that by putting this garden together to commemorate him. And in that process, we were able to work with uh, Japanese gardeners and people who have uh, special skills in sculpting trees, the landscape, Mm -hmm. and getting into the intimate detail of how this garden might be able to come about. So we met with uh, a lady by the name Miss Otani. Otani, okay. And she joined us uh, here on campus in what I would call a charrette. Okay, sure, sure. And listeners who don't know that term, it's like a, it's like a meeting where, where you study an issue from many different angles and you have a lot of different points of view. So you had a charrette about uh, the design of the garden. That's right. Mm-hmm. We also had... Uh, Some of the people here on campus participate, Mm -hmm. Uh, the president, Mm -hmm. uh, the maintenance staff, facility director, uh, some of the uh, professors on campus that had a particular interest in the garden, Mm -hmm. and, of course, the Japanese architect. Right. So me being a professional landscape architect, she being a landscape gardener, but in every right, is also a landscape architect. Okay. We were able to collaborate and take all of those kind of special little things that people like to see in their campus mm-hmm. and meld them in together. Uh, and we would communicate by sketches. We really didn't have uh, the ability to communicate uh, verbally because neither of us knew the other language. Interesting. So she she uh, wasn't a proficient English speaker and you did not speak Japanese, so you were communicating through sketches? That's right. That's fascinating. So we had a good topographical map, mm-hmm. which shows the contours of the land and right. also shows where buildings are located. And her philosophy uh, became very apparent very soon. And that was, <clears throat> it had to have land and it had to have water. Right. So the pond that you see in the uh, garden today is actually simulating Boaco Lake. Right. So it's the same shape. The outline of the of the uh, pond is is that lake. Is it Biaku? That's correct. Oh wow! And so through that process, we were able to also look adjacent to Atsu, Japan, mm-hmm. and there is a a mountain range there. Uh, Atsu is located pretty much in the center of the island okay, uh, near Kyoto. And we were able to simulate then the mountain terrain in the garden as well. Because in that uh, one corner of the garden, there's a raised uh, area with the, where the waterfall comes, right? That is, that's the feature you're talking about. And that simu- simulates that mountain. That's correct. And then one of my favorite parts of the garden, there is that um, like high mountain path and, and, the, and the lanterns. Uh, I had someone translate those inscriptions, and that's essentially what it says, like high mountain road or mountain road. Is that, that was by design, correct? It was. It was meant to simulate uh, the homeland and bring it here uh, and make a footprint uh, here on campus. So the pathways represent the roadways and pathways. Mm-hmm that people follow uh, in Atsu. 
And there's also a variety of symbolization within the mountain itself. Take, for example, the stones. Yes. We spent over two weeks looking at various stones Mm -hmm. and selecting the correct stones with a specific uh, center of gravity of each stone. So Atani was very particular in how these stones are to be placed. Right. So she she was she wanted um, she wanted the stones to be arranged in a very particular way. And this is something I've learned about Japanese gardens. Uh, I toured the Japanese gardens at at Cranbrook School down in Metro Detroit, and heard the stories about how deliberate it was to the placement of the stones. And that's that that's true in our garden, correct? It is. In fact, some of the stones are purposely placed so that they're not clearly visible. There's always one stone that is going to be hidden hmm. from each angle that you view the composition. That's fascinating. Now I'm going to have to look again when I go. Th- and I see it a lot because it's, it's right there by where I live. So tell me a little bit. So, so you did the sketches, and then I, you told me your firm does the planning and the architecture. So you didn't physically put all that um, material in there, but I'm sure you were a, a part of its uh, – uh, of when it was being constructed. And I've seen these great pictures of uh, a crane bringing in the stone bridge. And, and t- tell me a little bit about actually moving from your designs to what we see now in the garden. How did that happen? So Atani took the information that we generated through the charrette. Mm-hmm. She took them back to Atsu. And then we corresponded through mail. Okay. And we would make final subtle revisions. We were then working on the construction design, okay. which includes grading plans, layout plans, elevations, uh, how the water is going to flow down the, the rockscape, mm-hmm. the fountains, and all of the sort of technical aspects of the, of the design. Mm-hmm. We translated that into construction documents and then sent those back to her. She would review them, make minor changes, we would then react, and finally we had a uh, package that we could actually put out to contractors to bid. Right, right. And, and I've seen some of the videos of the contractors that ended up being used, and there was a, a lot of care taken to put everything in the, in the correct order according to your design. So then we uh, hired HTA, right. which H-T-A. is okay. a local landscape company, mm-hmm. and uh, we had a very good working relationship with them. So... We were able to oversee the construction and any questions or details that they had questions about. Since we're local right here in Lansing, we could very easily come over to the site, work out those issues as we went through the construction process. That's really fascinating to me. And as we talked about before, I've just taken a really keen interest in our garden and its history and I'm learning a lot about other Japanese gardens. And one of the things that is really important to me is the ongoing maintenance and stewardship of this really special space. I think it's really important for us to hear the stories that you're talking about, about why the garden is set up the way it is. Because we can't just change it on a whim, right? We can't, for example, you know, change the shape of the pond because it's very specifically honoring a particular lake in Japan. Um, what, what other kinds of things do uh, you think are, what do you think is important in maintaining a space like uh, uh, 
like Shigematsu Garden? Because you can't just create it and walk away, right? It, it requires care and maintenance for a lifetime. It really does. Uh, a garden, any gardener that, that knows uh, what it takes to maintain something, it's a labor of love also. Mm-hmm. So uh, Lansing Community College has done a fabulous job of sort of keeping it going. But over time, without understanding how the plants are going to mature, right. it's pretty easy to let things maybe grow a little bit more than what they normally should for a manicured garden, mm-hmm. such as a Japanese garden. So trimming is very important. In fact, they sent over specific people that would uh, trim the trees for us mm-hmm. so that we could learn a little bit about how they maintain their, their vegetation. Right. Uh, also, making sure the water is clean, mm-hmm. uh, the fountains have to be maintained, and uh, the gravel, uh, that is the pathway composition, has to be maintained as well. So there's the normal everyday uh, upkeep. But then every so often, every five years or so, you really should go through and really do a major uh, maintenance program. Well, and Bob, that's one thing I'd like our listeners to know, because I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with this space on campus. And that's one of the reasons you and I are talking is that, you know, we're, I'm interested in having us take a comprehensive look of where the garden is right now. And you're working with us on a team that's uh, taking a look at where are we, you know, 16 or so years in uh, as, as being the stewards of this great garden. Uh, the, from my perspective, you know, a lot of the hardscaping is still in amazing shape. Um, the, the wooden structures on the moon viewing deck and the terrace, those are made out of wood that's very, um, it, it's in great shape. It, uh, um, I'm not sure, do you recall the kind of wood it's made out of? It's some very, very dense wood. It's a dense wood imported from Africa. It's called ipe. I pay, and it's African wood. I did not know this. Okay, and so that's the moon viewing deck and that terrace are I pay wood from Africa. And um, it's darker than it was, but it is, I mean, th- there's no decay in the in the wood. I mean, we I, I go on that moon viewing deck a lot, and it is, you know, as structurally sound as the day it was built. It's very dense. It's harder than oak. Really? A lot of people are familiar with how hard oak is. Mm-hmm. So uh, like you say, it holds up very well. And that wood was chosen for that reason. Oh, fascinating. And, and in addition to the rocks, there are some, I, I'm guessing they're concrete, the, the, the lamps and the lanterns. Lanterns are very important in Japanese culture and in Japanese gardens in particular. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the two lamps that we have in there? One is quite large and the other smaller. The lanterns were brought in specifically uh, from Japan, and as you say, they have significance. They wanted the one lantern to be larger to represent uh, their sim- symbol of uh, importance for light and for being able to light the way uh, along the path. Okay. So it is an exaggerated size, mm-hmm. but it was deliberately done that way uh, that Miss Hotani wanted it to be, you know, sort of magnificent. And what I've, what I've heard from uh, talking to other folks and reading some of the things in our LCC archives is that large lantern is a design that's called a snow lantern. That's, there's a lot of snow on the ground right now, and, and it's just beautiful. I actually went through and t- did a little walkthrough video with a foot and a half of snow in the garden. 
so that I could share it with folks. But that snow lantern is just beautiful in the winter. Well, I'm glad that you noticed that and did a little research. That's excellent. Well, it's it's really become a, a passion of mine. In fact, this spring I'll be traveling to Portland to meet with some folks at the Japanese garden there. I had the opportunity to meet the – and we joined – you'd be very happy to know. As a college, we joined the North American Japanese Garden Association. Excellent. Um, in fact, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but as we sort of refresh the garden in the next year or two – um, I'm a writer. All, all of my uh, degrees are in English. I think we should write an article for their uh, journal, the North American Japanese Garden Association Journal, about the ongoing legacy of this uh, uh, a garden. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, the other key factor was the bridge. Yes. Tell us the story of the bridge. Well, I don't know much about the uh, symbolism behind the bridge other than it mimics uh, Japanese bridges, mm-hmm. and it was uh, done with drills. So you start with a block of granite that's the size of the bridge. There's no joint within that bridge that's at all. That's one solid piece of granite? Correct. Wow. And so just like Michelangelo, they start chipping away. Mm-hmm. They can see the bridge uh, once they look at the block of granite, so that I'm told. Mm-hmm. And then... They have people with drills and little drumlets on the end of the drill, and they literally start drilling the holes that form the balustrades in the bridge itself. So all of that was hand-chiseled or ground out, so to speak, in order to make this bridge come to life. If you've seen this bridge, if if you've seen this bridge, you can't imagine the amount of work that that would take because it is a huge piece of granite. Um, on Twitter today, I put up some pictures of the bridge being lowered into place. Right now, we're building a, a parking deck, and we've got a giant red crane on campus. But there was a giant crane on campus back in 2006. Where where was that? Uh, was the truck was the truck on uh, Capitol Avenue? And then it kind of how did how did that bridge get there? So back then. Uh... LCC, by the way, buried all of the electrical lines on Capitol Avenue, which was a, an amazing project in and of itself. It, it makes it so much nicer because I remember when there were all the telephone poles and the power poles, and it just it's it, it's very attractive on Capitol Avenue now. But back then, the wires were there, so the bridge had to crawl in underneath the wire, and then elevate the uh, crane and reach over the wires to pull the bridge off of the truck and then lift it all the way up in the air over the wires and eventually placing it where it is today. So it was a very large crane. It's huge. And I I have some pictures. We'll put them in the show notes for today's uh, episode. We also have some great video of that coming in. And there are a lot of folks on campus who remember that must have been a big deal, just like it is now. And we see this this giant crane over at the the, uh, parking ramp. So before we finish, Bob, I would love to have your thoughts about the future of the garden. And here we're almost coming up on having it for 20 years. This this was a garden designed to last decades and decades. What what are your thoughts uh, about the garden in the future? And what would you tell me as the president that I ought to know about making sure uh, that we maintain uh, this wonderful space here in Lansing? Well, I do think that it would be nice to uh, utilize the garden during the winter months as well as the spring, yeah, summer, and fall. Mm-hmm. 
And by having that one main walkway, which is handicap accessible, by mm -hmm. the way, we're able to probably make a passage through the garden so that you can appreciate the lantern in the snow. You can see everything that's covered. It makes a beautiful sight in the wintertime as, as well as any other season. And uh, also being able to maintain the pumps for the waterfall, mm -hmm. which probably needs some serious work having been, you know, a while now. Right. And along with the plant material, some of that plant material could be aging out. Right. We have to take a look at how mature it is. Some of those pines were there originally that were preserved and what health they're in, uh, as well as the rest of the vegetation. Yeah, and that's the process we're engaged in right now, and I'm, I'm glad you're a part of that team. And um, I, I'm looking forward to many years to come of uh, an enjoyable space on our campus at the uh, Shigematsu Japanese Garden. And Bob, it was wonderful to get to know you and visit with you a little bit. And thanks for uh, your great contributions to this real gem on our campus. Well, I appreciate that so much. And I just want to leave with you one little saying that was uh, Shigematsu's sort of parting gift to us. Mm -hmm. And he says, it's a quote by Rao Khan, I might be mispronouncing that, but what might I have leave you as my lasting legacy? Flowers in the springtime, the cuckoo singing all summer, and the yellow leaves of autumn. That is the perfect way to end our conversation. Thank you so much for your time, Bob. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Teachable Moment is recorded by Steve Robinson and produced in the WLNZ studio on LCC's downtown campus. The soundtrack is licensed through DeWolf Music and was composed by John Rowcroft. Want more Teachable Moment? Visit lccconnect.org for more episodes. And if you have an idea you'd like to discuss with me on the show, send an email to steve underscore robinson at lcc.edu. Until next time, keep learning. You're listening to LCC Connect on WLNZ Lansing, 89.7 FM. Sharing the voices of Lansing Community College. Visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Sergeant Jason Nielsen was paralyzed while serving as an MP in Iraq. The sniper from down the alleyway shot me. Six weeks later, I woke up at Walter Reed, not really knowing where I was at. Paralyzed veterans of America's national service officers, such as Sherita Latham, are trained to help injured veterans get all the benefits they've earned. I could call Sherita at 11 o'clock at night, and she would answer the phone and be like, what can I do for you, Jason? If someone needs you, you listen to them. If they call, we're there for them. She worked with my wife hand-in-hand, hand, um, took care of everything for me just so I could focus on just recovery and, and trying to get on with life. If there was no PVA, we wouldn't have the benefits that we have. We wouldn't know about the benefits. To learn how you can help paralyzed veterans, visit pva.org. This has been a presentation of LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices 
vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. All shows featured on LCC Connect are recorded at the WLNZ Studio, located on LCC's downtown campus. Each program is podcast-based and can be heard anytime at lccconnect.org. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on one of our shows, connect with us by emailing lcc-connect at lcc.edu.